So we are working our way through the book of Exodus, and Exodus means to leave, it means to exit, it means Brexit. You're going to read about 10 plagues in the book of Acts, excuse me, in the book of Exodus. And these 10 plagues in the book of Exodus start from chapter 7, and we spent the last three Sundays looking at chapter 7. And from Exodus chapter 7, we read about the blood. Uh, From chapter 8, we're going to read about frogs, lice, and flies, all disgusting creatures. Uh, Chapter 9, we are going to read about livestock diseased, boils, and hail. From chapter 10, we are going to read about locusts, darkness, and finally from chapter 12, death of the firstborn. So one more time, blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock, diseased, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. As somebody once said, if you mess with God, he will mess with you. And you've got 10 plagues that are going to cripple, absolutely uh, rip Egypt apart. Let's start today, if we may, from Exodus chapter 8, Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs, and the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. Keep your hand there, and go to Revelation. uh, Revelation chapter 16, scripture with scripture, as Martin Luther once said. And again, this will be a repeat of Midrash. What takes place in the Old Testament will take place again in the New Testament. If you think of the Old Testament, like the first half of a football match, 45 minutes, and the New Testament being the second half of a football match, 45 minutes, you've got a 90-minute game, and at the end of the 90-minute game, the referee blows the final whistle. Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16, look at verse uh, 6. Uh, Hold on a second, Revelation 16, Revelation 16. You look at verse 6. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. For they are worthy blood to drink, like from chapter 7, Exodus chapter 7. Or if you think of John chapter 6, the blood of Christ and Catholics come along and twist and mangle that piece of scripture to suggest that whenever they partake of the mass, they are drinking the blood. Of the Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is insane. Jump over to verse 13, please. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Well, the unholy trinity, of course, and frogs are here described as unclean spirits, which goes back to what I said last time. If you think of witchcraft or Wicca, if you think of the color green, very synonymous with witches and if you think of frogs it all seems to go together i jump down to verse 21 please and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven every stone about the weight of a talent and men blasphemed god because of the plague of the hail for the plague thereof was exceeding great and of course the hail like i say is uh, one of the ten plagues found over in chapter 9 uh, go to revelation chapter 19 revelation chapter 19 
Book of verse uh, 17, please. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. Stand in the sun, 17. Somebody once said that when this earth is burnt up and the new earth has arrived, Almighty God will take hell, which is currently under the earth, and put it into the sun. A terrifying thought. You've got fowls flying in the midst of heaven, not just ordinary birds, but here picturing the preparation for the awful destruction of the enemies of the Lord. And these birds, these fowls, which are also pictured as demons and devils, are here about to eat the Lord's enemies. Go back to Exodus chapter 8, please. Exodus chapter 8. Look at verse 4 again. And the frogs shall come up both on thee and upon thy people and upon all thy servants. Frogs, back in the ancient world, were considered to be sacred animals. Can you believe it? And almost godlike too. It was said that their croaking was connected to fertility. So for the Egyptians to uh, be surrounded with frogs was a good thing. But the Lord will take something uh, which, as far as they were concerned, uh, being good, turn it into a bad thing. So frogs, as far as the ancient world uh, was concerned, would be considered to be holy. Revelation 16 speaks about frogs, unclean spirits coming out of the mouths of the Antichrist, the beast and the false prophet. So you see, again, Old Testament Exodus 8, feeding into Revelation uh, 16 and beyond. Look at verse 5, please, from Exodus chapter 8. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with thy rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. So I sat down this morning, and I wanted to know what the measurements were are for the land of Egypt and apparently as of right now there are 100 million people that live in Egypt and if you were to measure the land of Egypt it is 1 million square kilometers. Uh, Egypt is four times larger than the UK. America is 10 times larger than Egypt. If you think of the ancient world and uh, when you do so if you think of countries like uh, Egypt which technically come under Africa, that of course also feeds into Ham. But if you think of countries, if you think of power, prestige, it is very typical of the Lord to pick a country like Egypt, a huge country. In fact, even today, Egypt is still a very powerful country. To take such a country, to turn it on its head and destroy it from within, you can see why he would do that. Because many times he does miracles on a large scale and also on a minor scale. But like I say, frogs are, as far as Egyptians were concerned, considered to be holy. And therefore, this is going to be humiliating for the Egyptians to be absolutely uh, afflicted with their own people or with their own insects, I should say, affecting their own people. And again, you've got streams from verse 5. You've got ponds from verse 5. You've got rivers from verse 5. Egypt is a hot country. Also, we think of mosquitoes. And lice, and we'll get to lice uh, in a few moments. You can appreciate why those that are into demonology like to speak about 
a lot of demon-possessed people, having an affiliation with the sea. There's something about the sea, rivers, ponds, oceans, of course, in very hot climates. Look at verse 6, please. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So let me say this. Number one, it could be possible. It could be possible that when it speaks about the land of Egypt, it could be in reference to the entire land of Egypt. Or it could be in reference to the proximity of Pharaoh's palace. If it's in proximity to Pharaoh's palace, that'll be a tiny part of the river Nile. But if it's in reference to the entire land of Egypt, like without uh, distinction, then what you're going to have to look at is the reality and consider the reality that the Lord has just completely engulfed over one million square kilometers of land with frogs. I think I will stick with my uh, original suggestion that this will be in reference to, first and foremost, uh, Pharaoh's palace. But it could also uh, concern those that were living in and around the palace of Pharaoh. Seven, and the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt as a counterfeit, of course. If you think of Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, it speaks about a counterfeit group of ministers, a counterfeit group of preachers. If you think about Revelation 17, it speaks about a counterfeit church. If you think about Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, it speaks about a counterfeit Christ. And as of right now, most of the world are going around in a bit of a daze, completely uh, unable to detect truth from fiction, and are following false idols. And that's why when the uh, Antichrist arrives, most of the world are going to fall over themselves to greet him. So 8, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, feeding into 8, are really dealing with two things. First of all, the Lord is speaking to Moses in an audible voice, going back to the script I gave you from last week, from Second Timothy chapter uh, chapter 3. He hears what the Lord is uh, relaying to him. He will later write this down, and of course this is what we're reading about this morning, found in the Old Testament. The Lord wants to make it clear to Moses that what he is commissioning Moses to do will take place in real time. Also, you've got Aaron found in verse 5 and 6, working hand in hand with Moses. Aaron will do miracles, signs and wonders, unlike John the Baptist. Peter and Paul will do signs and wonders. The two witnesses in the book of Revelation are going to work hand in hand and do miracles together. But when it comes to Jesus and John, only Jesus would, of course, do miracles. In fact, if you get your hands on the uh, Britannica Encyclopedia and the Americana Encyclopedia, uh, they suggest that when it comes to history, when it comes to religious people, Jesus Christ is the number one uh, miracle maker when it comes to miracles. Nobody could match him. Look at verse 8. 8.8. Eight. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. Moses and Aaron, I want you to intercede for me. And yes, it's true to say that Moses was a mediator with a small m. Jesus Christ is the mediator 
with a capital M. And here, um, Pharaoh is aware that the frogs are outnumbering the people. I mean, if we have, or if there are 100 million Egyptians living in Egypt today, we could probably suggest that the figure was half that, or perhaps a quarter. So we could suggest this. We could suggest that around the time of Moses and co., you've got around 30 million, or let's cut that again to, say, 20 million. You've got 20 million Egyptians living in Egypt, a country, one more time, which is four, si- uh, four times four times the size of the UK. You've got around 20 million Egyptians just battling these frogs. One minute they are worshipping them, the next minute they are detesting them, wanting to get rid of these frogs. They are sick of such frogs. And Pharaoh wants Moses now to entreat the Lord to intercede on behalf of Pharaoh and his people. And it also says, latter part of verse 8, And I will let the people go, that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. Very reminiscent of Herod from uh, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, and in Matthew chapter 2, you've got Herod inquiring uh, from the wise men as to where the king of the Jews was to be born. And they tell him, uh, along with uh, the reverent fathers, exactly where the uh, Messiah was to be born. And, of course, he had no intention of going down to pay homage uh, to the king of the Jews. But he wanted to know. And, of course, he would later order the death of all the newborn babes, uh, boys to be precise, under the age of two years. And here... Pharaoh, with one hand behind his back, fingers crossed, and I'll discuss fingers crossed and fingers, probably next week, doesn't really want to let them go. He is simply telling Moses what he wants him to hear. Look at verse 9, please. And Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me, when shall I entreat for thee, and for thy servants, and for thy people, to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses? that they may remain in the river only. Who do you think I am, Pharaoh? It's like Joseph. It's like Daniel. When they came into the presence of ungodly Gentiles, especially Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was a very humble man. Joseph would say that interpretations belong to the Lord. Several times in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas and others would say, uh, it's not about us, it's about the Lord. And that's one of the quickest ways to spot a real preacher or a real ministry. Do they preach the blood? Do they preach about Jesus? Do they preach about the finished work of Christ on the cross? Do they preach about an infallible Bible? If they don't, throw them out. When shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses, that they may remain in the river only? He's saying quite simply this, it's not about me, it's about the Lord. He's already told you from previous chapters that he is the Lord God. There was only one Lord God, of course, and he wants uh, to make it very clear to Pharaoh that he needs to acknowledge that. Pharaoh was very religious. I think sometimes historians and unbelievers like to paint people uh, in the Old Testament as being freedom fighters or free thinkers. No way. Pharaoh, like Herod, like Pilate, was very superstitious, very religious. Going back to Revelation 16, unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouths of the unholy trinity, the great battle 
flies or fowls fly in the midst of the heavens, uh, preparing the slaughter of the enemies of the Lord. Revelation 19. Somebody once said that when it comes to the scripture, there are no atheists in the scripture. A lot of truth in that. 10. And he said, tomorrow, and he said, be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. So this will be an indirect uh, witness to Pharaoh on behalf of Moses. And like I said, over the last several Sundays, it was a very brave thing for Moses to do this, along with his biological brother. And at the same time, Moses doesn't know that in total there will be 10 plagues inflicted on the people of Egypt from Jehovah. And also 10 is the number of the Gentile. 10 is a Gentile number because, of course, Pharaoh was a Gentile. Herod was a Gentile. Pilate was a Gentile. Whereas, of course, the Jews are just that, Jews. 11. And the frogs shall depart from thee, and from thy houses, and from thy servants, and from thy people. They shall remain in the river only. That's power. If you think of so-called great leaders over the years, much of what you hear is rhetoric. But when it comes to power, when it comes to miracles, signs and wonders, they can't do it. If you think of someone like Malcolm X, or Farrakhan, or Martin Luther King, Just three infamous uh, people from different backgrounds, and yet in their day were very powerful, very popular. I think it was Martin Luther King that arranged the Million Man March to Washington, D.C., 1962. Yes. 61, 62. And they turned up in their numbers. And if you see footage, black and white footage of that event, he's got Muslims there. He's got Catholic priests there. He's got Protestants there. He's got Marxists there. He's got anarchists there. He's got Democrats there. He's got Republicans there. Talk about pulling the world and his wife together. I have a dream, dream, of course. And if you think of the Antichrist, it'll be, again, Midrash. I'm not saying Martin Luther King was uh, a type of the Antichrist. Not really. He was more of a carnal, backslidden Christian. But the point is this. He pulled the crowds in as the Antichrist will do, and they fell for Martin Luther King. In fact, I believe in America, every January, I forget which day it is, there is a national holiday in honor of Martin Luther King. And yet, I remember reading years ago that there are 15 sealed filing cabinets concerning Martin Luther King, uh, detailing FBI reports. 15, not five, but 15 sealed filing cabinets until, I think it's 2068. But the point is this, those men, Malcolm X, Farrakhan, uh, King, powerful men, good with their tongues, a lot of rhetoric, couldn't do miracles, couldn't raise the dead, couldn't do a fraction of what Moses is able to do. And that's also one of the quickest ways to spot a real messenger of the Lord. 12. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. So the insinuation is that this infestation, this massive influx of frogs, is affecting a good part of Egypt. And these, uh, this particular verse from 13, you got... Villages, 
houses, fields could suggest. Number one, it's in reference to the proximity, one more time, of Pharaoh's palace. It could be a hundred mile radius. Or we could suggest that it is in reference to the entire country of Egypt. The Lord could do both, of course, but I think it's more in reference to the Nile region because the River Nile, like I say, is a huge river and I gave you the measurements from last week. So how do you want to approach this? This is supernatural. This isn't just happening by chance. This is happening for a purpose. And as always, the Lord is behind it. Verse 14, please. And they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. If you drain uh, a pond or a river or a stream, it stinks, quite simply. I've done many videos over the years uh, near waters, rivers, and streams. And sometimes, like summertime, it can smell. Because, of course, you've got feces there, you've got insects, you've got ducks, swans, you've got... Uh, people throwing their rubbish into such uh, waters, and of course it smells. Also, if you think of sin, sin is a stench in the nostrils of the Lord. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There isn't a just man on the face of the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Look at verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart, and he hearkened not unto them. As the Lord had said. There's two ways to think of this. Number one, you could suggest this. You could suggest this is in reference to a saved man or a saved woman who is backsliding. Like Martin Luther King, who was an ordained Baptist pastor, I should also add. And after backsliding for a while and getting involved with the flesh, doesn't repent, doesn't clean up and has simply hardened their hearts. This this could also be in reference to an unsaved man or woman who hears the gospel repeatedly and also hardens their hearts and won't listen to the call to repentance. But in the context, verse 15, this is dealing with Pharaoh, a very religious, powerful, superstitious leader who is being humiliated, quite simply, by two uh, Jewish gentlemen. And yes, Moses was... Technically, royalty, because his uh, stepmother was the daughter of the previous uh, pharaoh, whereas Aaron, three years older than himself, was a slave. And you must have, you know, you could think, or you would be of the opinion, had you been privy to such a meeting taking place, why does he put up with these people breezing in here, calling for meetings and laying the law down, literally laying the law down. That's where it comes from, laying the law down. Who does this guy think he is? Just came to the gutter. Pharaoh was many things, but he wasn't a fool. It's a bit like that text from uh, uh, the Gospels where it speaks about uh, Herod gladly listening, gladly monitoring, gladly observing. That's the word. Gladly observing John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been imprisoned. He's preached against uh, Herod's second wife, second marriage. He married his sister-in-law. And uh, John the Baptist would castigate uh, Herod for that. And yet, if you compare John the Baptist's castigation to the Apostle Paul when he comes up against the third and final uh, King Herod in the book of Acts, who I think, for memory, was in a relationship with his biological sister, he doesn't mention it. Isn't that interesting? 
John the Baptist, Old Testament preacher, takes Herod to task, Paul the Apostle, uh, our Apostle to the Gentiles, to the church, when he comes into contact with Herod and his uh, biological sister in an incestuous um, relationship, doesn't challenge that. He preaches holiness, temperance, and righteousness to save men from two dispensations, handling the uh, subject of sin different ways. But 15, one more time, and I'll close, speaks about Herod. Uh, when he saw that there was respite, like a break, hardened his heart, because his heart is no good. Going back to Jeremiah seventeen nine, and on top of that, hearkened not unto them. He had free will, I can't stress that enough. As the Lord had said. So you got 15 verses dealing with this titanic clash concerning Moses and Aaron working side by side. Aaron wasn't needed, but due to Moses' insecurity and also his humbleness, uh, his humility, the Lord allowed a helpmate, be like Adam and Eve, to work hand in hand to bring Pharaoh to his knees. And during this titanic clash as i say concerning really moses and pharaoh frogs have been quadrupled multiplied tenfold and possibly have covered a country four times the size of the uk africa is a hot country africa is able to breed insects like mosquitoes uh lice flies and locusts, and we will speak about locusts when we get to chapter 10. But we'll hold it there, and next week continue and try and delve a little deeper into the book of Exodus from chapter 8. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. And last Sunday, by the grace of God, we were able to cover the first 15 verses from the 8th chapter. And I want to read verse 15 again, if I may. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. So, number one, the Lord is going to harden the hearts of Pharaoh. Number two, Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. And when those two come together, you are looking at a catastrophe. Egypt as of right now, is 100 million strong, remains one of the most powerful countries in the Middle East. But go back to 1500 years of BC, like 1500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. And here, Pharaoh, the third and final found in the book of Exodus, has been forced to entertain two biological brothers. It was humiliating for him. And yet, the word of God says time after time how the powers that be are ordained of God. And also from Romans 13, we are to submit to such people. If you think of the Nebuchadnezzar incident, the Lord broke him. Literally broke his back, put him out into the wilderness and he was on his hands and knees for a period of time until he came to his senses but like i said last sunday this is a heart issue not a head issue whether you're saved or unsaved it really makes no difference you were told to examine yourself you were told to make sure that you are in the faith 
you were told to make your calling and election sure. Just before the service began, we were discussing some of the greats from the Old Testament, people like David and Solomon, and I made the case to our little group that I know who I am, I know what I am. I won't uh, waste your time or my time kidding those around this table as to my wickedness, my innate wickedness, but by the grace of God, I am saved. I'm saved by the blood of Christ, and if... Anything is worth bragging about, it would be just that. Look at verse 16, please. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So we've gone from frogs to lice. Lice are disgusting. And if you think of World War II, if you think of Jews, gypsies, Protestants, homosexuals, anyone who had the audacity to question the Third Reich, will be sent to death camps all over Europe. And yet, little footnote to add, by 1945, there were 200 Russian death camps. 200 all over the Soviet Union. Ten times more than the Germans. And yet, as a student of history, I very rarely hear much about the Gulags. I hear nothing about Molotov or uh, Beria. Stalin, Lenin, but I hear plenty about Hitler, Goering, and Himmler. 200 death camps, and the Russians are rounding up people left, right, and center. Anyone who dared question Uncle Joe, many Jewish doctors, innocent Jewish doctors, were put to death. Most of his uh, Russian generals, pre-1940, were put to death. And then one day, the Germans started to mobilize and to the shock and horror of Joseph Stalin, they were 17 miles outside of the gates of Moscow. And during that time, uh, Stalin couldn't handle it and went to ground. He had a breakdown, a literal nervous breakdown, couldn't handle it. But those poor people that found themselves in the Russian gulags, those poor people that found themselves in the German concentration camp, suffered with lice. And that's one of the reasons why they would have their heads shaved. If you found yourself in an American jail back in the 1920s, 1930s, one of the first things they would do was to shave your hair off. Because lice, of course, is filthy. It's also contagious. It's disgusting. But for the prospect or from the perspective of the Egyptians, frogs were considered to be sacred idolatry and we discussed idolatry a little while ago which of course is the main sin in scripture the lord will put up with many things from his own people but when a saved man or a saved woman becomes a perpetual idolater it's all over their ministry becomes worthless they become barren and perhaps uh, experience the sin unto death the lord said unto moses say unto aaron Stretch out thy rod, like a staff, a stick, and smite, hit the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So you're going to have lice all over the place, and the lice are, if you think of any kind of insect, like a mosquito, a disgusting insect, or historically would be small, wingless, blood-sucking insects. 
And we refer to people today like uh, leeches. We say he's a leech. He's a blood sucker. He's always uh, taken, but he's never giving. And here you got lice inflicting the land of Egypt, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, again, it could be if we think that Egypt, or if we remind ourselves that Egypt is one million square kilometers, it could be, number one, that the lice are going to cover the entire land of Egypt. That's a possibility. Or we could suggest that the lice is going to cover the palace, the proximity of Pharaoh and Co. Either way, it would have been an awful sight to behold because these people, the Egyptians, worshipped themselves, animals and others. And therefore the Lord is going to take this abomination of self-worship and so-called sacred animals and return such on their own or into their own proximity. 17. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So now the animals and obviously people are going to suffer equally. Back in Genesis, Adam was told to first of all have dominion over the animal world. Number two, to name the animals. Romans speaks about the entire creation groaning. And you wonder sometimes why animals suffer because of Adam, quite simply. Adam is the head, in a federal sense, over the human race and also the animal world. But again, if you were an Egyptian, 15, 1600 years BC, you worshipped animals. You saw animals as being sacred. If you... Think of India today, you've got the Hindus, the Sikhs, and the Muslims, and the Hindus and the Sikhs are very interested in animals, and they consider such to be holy. And if you attack or kill an animal in parts of India, you would be detained, put before the courts. And yet, if you rape a young girl, and there was a case in India some years ago, a schoolgirl was gang raped on a bus, you may remember it. It made world news. Several boys and also men decided to rape this girl on a bus, top floor of a bus, for about around an hour or two before throwing her out of the bus. And that became a big story, and the police were so slow, so slow to deal with it. There was more of an outcry concerning the death of a old cow or an old goat than the rape of that young girl and I may be wrong but I seem to recall they were Islamic men Muslim men Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth and it became lice in man not just on man but in man and in beast could have gone into his ears up his nose into his mouth think about that all the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So you're going to have millions, perhaps billions, of lice, like wingless, blood-sucking insects flying around, similar to mosquitoes, and also such as contagious. One of the problems that girls have when they go to school is that they get nits 
into their hair. It's a disgusting thing. And of course, nets uh, are contagious. And any mother with daughters will first of all attempt to wash their daughter's hair to get rid of the nets. That sometimes fails and therefore they have to dye the hair of their daughters to kill the nets. Disgusting things. Yeah. 18. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Keep your hand there. And jump over to Daniel. Daniel chapter 5. People think that the devil is as powerful as the Lord. He doesn't even come halfway. Yes, he has a lot of power, more than we do. And we were told back in Jude not to uh, rebuke the devil. We were told to leave such to the Lord. But Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5, uh, verse 8 says this. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astoned. Go back to Exodus chapter 8. So there are limitations, and praise the Lord for that. And sometimes Christians are paralyzed when it comes to, why am I going through this? Why am I going through that? The devil has a stronghold on me, and yes, sometimes he does. But going back to our conversation before the service began, our own natures are still pretty strong. Never mind the world, the flesh and the devil, we do pretty good ourselves. And many times we help the devil, if the truth be known. Magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. So we should rejoice in that, that the devil... His power is limited, controlled, curtailed by the Lord's permissive will. He allows things to take place. But never forget Romans 8.28. That text works together whether you are in fellowship with the Lord or not. Now, I don't understand that. I don't know anybody who really correctly understands Romans 8.28, whether you are in fellowship or not. If you are saved, everything is working together for good to those that love God who are the called according to his purpose. That thing is working 24-7, and the devil is at bay. But here, once again, you have a clash of the good and the bad, the pure and the unpure, the impure. Again, going back to the fact you're either saved or unsaved. There's no gray area when it comes to such a scripture. Look at verse 19, please, from Exodus chapter 8. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. This is a very interesting piece of scripture. Keep your hand there and go over to Luke. Luke chapter 11, the word of God says how the Lord created the world through his finger. He simply spoke creation into being. That's real power. And over in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11, we read the following from verse 20. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. Look at 18. If Satan also be divided against himself, 
how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. 19. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. Beelzebub, fly, Lord of the flies, 18, 19. Exodus chapter 8. Flies are going to be dispatched after the lice. Preceding that, of course, the frogs. But look at verse 20 again. But if I, Jesus Christ speaking, but if I, with the finger of God, singular, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. So clearly, Christ is almighty God. Go back to Exodus. So therefore, back in the Old Testament, when the Lord wanted to appear to anyone, anywhere, at any time, we say this, we say that such an appearance is a Christophany, a theophany. Some people believe that God the Father has a body. I don't believe that. Some people believe that the Holy Ghost has a body. I don't believe that. It says how all the fullness of the Godhead, which is bodily, slightly paraphrasing from Colossians, was revealed through Jesus Christ. So if you want to say God has a body, that body is Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ appeared in the Old Testament, or when God, let me clarify myself, when God appeared back in the Old Testament, it is a Christophany. It is Jesus Christ. When the Word became flesh, the incarnation, then God appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. So therefore, Exodus chapter 8, harmonize it with Luke chapter 11. You've got God the Son back in the Old Testament speaking to Moses, New Testament appearing in physical form. The magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, very reminiscent to the Magi's and the wise men around the throne of Herod. Where is the king of the Jews to be born? Bethlehem. They quote the scripture right down to the letter. Verbatim. No, well, we think he may be born here, or we think he may be born there. No, Bethlehem. And those guys knew the scriptures. David knew the scriptures. Solomon knew the scriptures. But again, it's a heart issue. Those men didn't want to humble themselves and go with three Gentiles downtown Bethlehem to meet the newborn king. Herod certainly wasn't going to go down and worship the newborn king because he was the so-called king of the Jews. So this is a heart issue. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God concerning the frogs, the lice, and the flies that are soon to come onto the scene. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Herod's heart was hardened. Pilate's heart was, high, uh, was, was hardened. The final king in the book of Acts that uh, Peter, excuse me, that uh, Paul would speak to, his heart was also hardened, and therefore he hearkened not unto them. Like the Pharisees, you reject the counsel of God. Many publicans and harlots are coming into the kingdom of God in droves, and yet you guys are standing afar off, bragging about how holy you are, and therefore they go into the kingdom of God before you. As the Lord had said. So these verses, once again, point to the reality that our hearts are no good. And yes, you get a new heart when you're born again. And yes, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Of course, I don't want to downplay the power of the cross, the power 
of the new birth, but every time I think of Paul from Romans chapter 7, what I want to do I don't do, and what I shouldn't do I end up doing. I can't do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do I end up doing. I'm paralyzed. And also from uh, Philippians chapter 3, I haven't yet attained to the perfection of the righteousness of the Lord. Look at verse 20 from chapter 8, please. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh. Lo, he cometh forth to the water, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So it would appear that Pharaoh enjoyed a daily ritual, a dip early in the morning, and the River Nile, one more time, is a very large lake, and I was on the River Nile some years ago, doing a 24-hour trip to uh, Egypt, and as a tourist, it was an interesting trip, somewhat of a rushed trip, and yet I noticed a couple of interesting things. When the plane landed at Cairo Airport, we all got onto the buses. Armed police got onto the buses with Kalashnikovs, and I thought, welcome to the Middle East. And we had two uh, plain-clothed policemen. Very friendly, actually. And there were two buses, so four police officers, two on each bus. And we went around the streets of Cairo. This was pre the uh, Islamic Spring, the Autumn Spring. I think that's what they called it, from 2011. Uh, This was pre the fall of uh, Mubarak and uh, Gaddafi. In fact, this was 2005, so Saddam had been arrested by then. And we went through the streets of Cairo, looking out, and I thought several things. Number one, very clean streets for the most part, but there was poverty. But what I also noticed, how there were police in every street corner, standing behind barricades. Four or five police officers wearing dark uniforms, berets, Kalashnikovs. It's a police state, you see. There's no democracy there. Or at least there wasn't pre-2011 when Mubarak was in office. But here you've got Pharaoh once again going for a wash, a ritual to clean himself up. There are no atheists in the word of God. And the Lord wants Moses to rise up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, present himself to Pharaoh. He cometh forth to the water and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord. In other words, this isn't from my mouth, Pharaoh. This is from the mouth of the Lord. Let my people go that they may serve me. This, of course, is a command. And the Lord, once again, wants to make it as clear as he can that he wants his people to leave Egypt in droves. And in 2011, the Egyptians rose up. And I remember watching those pictures live on television It was fascinating to watch. I mean, millions of Egyptians on the streets in that famous square. I forget the name of it. And the uh, governments in London, Washington and Paris didn't see it coming. We're out of touch. And the American administration were trying to prop up Mubarak. And so uh, so too was the British government. And the French government, millions of people, day in, day out, on the streets, 
all over Egypt, calling for the overthrow of President Mubarak. And eventually they got what they wanted. But here, verse 20, the context is to let God's people go. Now I'll say this, it could be, if you are an Egyptian, and I'm happy to be corrected if you are an Egyptian, but if you are an Egyptian, if you are a Christian Egyptian living in Egypt today, I, I want to suggest this. I would think that things are better than they were under Mabarak or Morsai. I know that when Morsai replaced Mabarak, he was the uh, leader of the Islamic Brotherhood, yep. a band group that had done jail time. And when Morsai came into Egypt as the leader, Christians suffered even more. Because at least with Mubarak, he was a secular Muslim. Whereas Morsai is a fundamentalist Muslim. And the head of the army, a guy called a CC, could see what was going on. And he said, we're not going to allow Egypt to go the way that it has in Iran. And therefore, the head of the army, a very brave man, also a secular Muslim like Mubarak, ordered the troops onto the streets and... After a period of time, he took over. And now things are better. In fact, I think it was last year I saw now President Assisi going around parts of Egypt apologizing to the Christians for how bad things had been. If you think of Saudi Arabia today, they have a new leader, Prince Mohammed, the crown prince, the soon-to-be leader of Saudi Arabia. And he said this last week, he said... Let's join forces with Israel and deal with Iran. Let's open churches in Saudi Arabia. Let's open synagogues in Saudi Arabia. Women can now drive. Cinemas are opening. I'm not in favor of that, of course, but the grip is being loosened. And I've watched this uh, young 30-something-year-old leader in Saudi Arabia. Yes, I know he's a Mohammedan. He's a Muslim. Of course he is. But he's a brave man, and I like people who are brave, and people are calling for his overthrow and other uh, serious things to come upon him, like death. But we're told to pray for such people. So therefore, the call is to let people out of the grip of Pharaoh, and that almost, in a sense, took place also some years ago with the overthrow of another tyrant, Mubarak and also Morsai. Look at verse 21, please. Else, if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee and upon thy servants and upon thy people and into thy houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground whereon they are. So frogs, lice, flies. Disgusting. They would say from Mark's gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ was a demon-possessed. They would say that he was doing what he was doing thanks to Beelzebub, an ancient term for the Lord of the Flies, the devil. In another term, another term for the devil. He has many terms, many names. And here, swarms of flies are going to come upon the servants, the people, the homes, to break the back the backs of Pharaoh and his leaders to bring them to their knees. If you think of, for example, South Africa today, mm. South Africa are run by a left-wing government. In fact, 
Two days ago, Patrick was speaking to a woman in Glasgow from South Africa, Cape Town, I think it was, and she remembers the good old days, and she was lamenting over the brokenness of her country. And it's true that South Africa, South Africa was a beautiful country back in the day. Johannesburg, Cape Town. In fact, I remember years ago working with a woman who was stationed at Johannesburg back in the late 1980s before Mandela was released. Beautiful country, she said. They call it Joburg. Beautiful country. Johannesburg, Cape Town, Pretoria, Durban, many parts of South Africa, now third world country. But now what they are wanting to do, the government, the ANC, African National Congress, they are wanting to, first of all, prohibit anyone, black or white, owning their own property. And this bill is going through the South African Parliament. And if it goes through, anyone, black or white, who owns any kind of property, it will be confiscated by the state. The state have to own everything. Look at Venezuela. I saw a clip on Facebook two weeks ago, a very distressing clip on Facebook of men, women, children and dogs eating from, we would call it here, rubbish bins, trash cans, dumpsters, human and animal, literally on all fours, eating from the rubbish bins, the trash cans, the dumpsters. But that, of course, is socialism. That's what Jeremy Corbyn would be wanting if he becomes the Prime Minister, and may that never happen. That's what is happening in Venezuela. That is what they are wanting to take place in South Africa. Socialism. Going back to the Gulags, 1945, up until the death of Stalin, 53, 54, and after Stalin's death, still a socialist state, of course, Brezhnev, Khrushchev, and other leaders down the line gradually reduced the gulags and gradually uh, loosened the hold over the people. Same is also true to some extent of China today, although it's still, still a socialist, uh, communist police state. Else, if thou wilt not let my people go in the context of the Jews, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thy houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground whereon they are. The same could be true of South Africa. There are saved people in South Africa. There are saved people in China. There are saved people in Venezuela, and also Cuba. I caught a documentary three days ago about Cuba. Very interesting documentary. And it said this. It said uh, from the revolution, late 50s, up until the handover from uh, Fidel to Ruel, uh, there was a very strict prohibition concerning homosexuals, lesbians. Death awaited such people. Internment camps awaited such people. And now... In fact, two years ago, they got a new leader as of last month. One of the uncles, I think, has replaced Ruel. The previous president, Fidel's brother, his daughter is pro-homosexuality, marches on the streets in Havana with the LGBTQT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people. Can never get that right. How times change. And yet during the time of Fidel 
and his brother. You wouldn't even mention it in public. Now they're marching the streets in Havana, and yet if you call for the overthrow of the government, they will put you inside. But if you are homosexual or lesbian, it's all good. But here's the point. These countries are in the grip of dictators. And such was taking place during the time of Pharaoh. And the Lord broke Pharaoh, literally. And he made it the same to the government of South Africa, Venezuela. Cuba is almost coming around. In fact, last night we were discussing a group of pastors who went to Cuba in 2002 had a meeting with Fidel Castro, explained the book of Revelation to him, explained the gospel, explained things that he'd never heard in his entire life. And he said this, well, maybe the Jesuits taught me wrong. Slightly joking, but maybe not. What do they say? Ever a true word said in jest? And Fidel Castro, for the first time in his life, had been given an accurate Bible study or an explanation, a condensed explanation concerning the book of Revelation, but more importantly, the gospel of the grace of God. So we will hold it there from verse 21 and just consider that flies, frogs, lice have been dispatched or inflicted, have been poured out onto the people in Egypt, like the uh, plagues found in the book of Revelation. Pharaoh is unable to stop this. His men are unable to averse this. And everyone apart from the children of Israel are going to suffer what is coming his way. And this is being done for one simple reason, to show the Lord's power, show his sovereignty, get him the glory that he is owed, and of course also to deliver his people out of the grip of Pharaoh, which is very similar to what we are seeing, as I say, in South Africa, Venezuela, and also in Cuba. Exodus chapter 8, please. Exodus chapter 8. And last Sunday we finished at verse 22, which I want to read again for this morning, if I may. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Emmanuel, meaning God with us, and once again, Emmanuel is coming through for his people, for the Old Testament, the children of Israel, for the New Testament, the body of Christ. I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell. If you think of Romans eight twenty-eight and beyond, it makes the case very clearly that no one or nothing anywhere at any time can ever separate us from our Saviour. That no swarms of flies in the context, physical flies, but spiritually in reference to unclean spirits, shall be there. Also going back to the fact that if you are saved, you can't be demon or devil possessed. To the end, thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of thee. Matthew seven twenty one two twenty three. the Lord said how many would appear to him in that day saying, Lord, Lord, and he turns around and says, I never knew you. Not I once knew you, but that I never knew you. And this past week we were in Stirling, Scotland, and a guy came over to us, and we had a conversation with him. And it turned out he was post-tribulation, whereas I am pre-tribulation. Turns out he was uh, into conditional security, whereas I'm into once saved, always saved. And I made the comment from uh, Matthew seven twenty-one to 23, 
how the Lord was making the case that those that are in his presence, and of course Matthew seven twenty one to 23 is in reference to the great white throne judgment, were never saved to begin with. If you are saved, you are saved. He won't turn around and say to you or me or someone else, well, I never knew you because he did know us. Those verses and that particular verse from Matthew seven twenty one to 23 is in reference to those that were never saved to begin with. So once again, the Lord is coming through for his people. He loves us more than we love him. And yet many times people are of the opinion that if they uh, need or that they're not always as holy as they should be. And therefore, they need to do something to be holier. In fact, this same man uh, from Sterling said to me that one of the reasons why the church had to go through the tribulation was to make us more fit for purpose. And I said to him, well, how can we be more fit for purpose? We have an imputed righteousness. You can't be any more justified than you already are. But this uh, land of Goshen, you may care to know, is 40 miles long, which is around 900 square miles. Contrast that to the land of Egypt, one million square kilometers, and therefore the Lord, all-powerful, is more than capable of sealing off a particular land, a particular part of Egypt, making such an area sacred land, if you will. He would say to Moses, take off your shoes. He would say to Joshua, on your face, you're in the presence of the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 23, if you will. And I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. This, of course, feeds into separation, segregation, a very unpopular subject. Most Christians rarely practice separation. In fact, most Christians would do all they can to avoid separation. I remember a brother, an elder in a conservative church, a brethren church, premillennial, pre-tribulational, King James, once saved, always saved, And one day, one of his daughters contracted HIV AIDS. And he said to me this, he said, well, I was shocked. She was hanging around with this Hindu man and he got her pregnant. And I begged her not to hang around with this Hindu man. And after several liaisons, she fell pregnant. And she contracted HIV AIDS from her Hindu lover. But by the grace of God, the child was clear. And as far as I know, has remained clear to this day. But his daughter, sleeping around with this Hindu man, fell pregnant with this Hindu man. Fast forward to, I think, five or six years after the birth of their loved child, the Hindu got sick. He got very sick. And depending on who you speak to, some suggested he got saved. Others suggested he was simply playing it safe. And this church gave him a Christian uh, burial, Christian service. His relatives arrived and started to give him Hindu rites. Praying over the body, praying over the corpse, so on and so forth. Talk about an ecumenical service. But here's the thing. That woman had been raised by her Christian parents, had been baptized, went through the church system. And I said to him, do you think your daughter's saved? He said, absolutely she's saved. And I thought to myself, when when was she saved? Was she saved as a young girl? Was she saved as a teenager? Was she saved before she met the Hindu? Was she saved after she met the Hindu? Maybe she was saved all along. I don't know. But here's the thing. She had been raised in that system, but she'd been playing around, contracted AIDS from her lover. He died as a result of the AIDS. She still has it. And she's on a lot of medication, and she will be for the rest of her life. And he said this to me. He said, well, my daughter is now walking very closely with the Lord. I hope she is. But here's the thing. No separation took place. No separation. 
And if you think of the scriptures, if you look at the Old and the New Testaments, you're told to separate for all sorts of reasons. Not just doctrinally, you're told to separate if a person doesn't live right and perpetually doesn't live right. And yet this elder in a very conservative church, and I believe he's saved, I have no reason to doubt his salvation. But when it came to his daughter, one of his several daughters, he had many children, he wouldn't separate from her. Now I'm not saying he should have done. If you ask what the scripture says, the scripture says he should have separated. But again, it's not as easy as you think. Most parents will not separate from their children. Most parents will overlook the transgressions of their own children. And yet, if such a transgression takes place in their own church, they won't overlook it. They pick and choose, you see, going back to the new covenant, going back to the reality that most Christians will pick and choose which parts of scripture they want to accept and which parts they do not. This man decided to stay in fellowship with his daughter. And now, like I say, she has HIV AIDS. If she makes it to 50, she's very fortunate. If she makes it to 55, it's a miracle. She won't make it to 60. And of course, as she gets older, her child will uh, be raised without a father and also a mother. But verse 23 in the context is in reference to Israel and Egypt. I will put a division between my people and thy people. Going back to Matthew 7, 21 to 23, you're either saved or unsaved. You're either a goat or a sheep. You're either in the church or you are not. But here, this is leading up to the children of Israel having to separate. Number one, having to be a great example to the Egyptians. Also a good example to their own people. Many times people like to mock the Old Testament and they paint the Lord as this awful tyrant who goes around killing people, who calls for the death of wicked people. But they seem to forget many times that when the Lord does such a thing and did such a thing, it's in reference to Israel. Israel governing themselves, the church governing themselves. You were told very clearly from, I think it's Matthew 18 from memory, that if your brother sins or your sister sins, you are to go to such a person and try and talk it out. Seek some kind of reconciliation, some kind of repentance. If that fails, you take two or, th- uh, two or three with you. And if that fails, the entire church is to confront such a person. Tomorrow shall this sign be. So once again, to prove the sovereignty and supernatural character of the Lord, he would do miracles left, right and center. We have to remind ourselves that Pharaoh was very superstitious, very religious. Not much got past him. His people would worship frogs, hence the Lord exploding their numbers. Uh, His people would also worship flies and also lice in a way that we don't really understand for the 21st century. And therefore, to really punish the sin of idolatry, he will do miracles, but not for them, but against them. Look at verse 24, please. And the Lord did so. And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupt by reason of the swarm of flies, going back to Beelzebub, that Term from the New Testament when the apostates, unbelieving, wicked Jews, had the gall and the wicked audacity to say to the Lord Jesus Christ how he was of Beelzebub. And on one occasion he says to those people, you insult me, you offend me. And he said this, he said, if you offend my father, you offend me. In other words, you can't come to the father unless you do so via the son. Swarms of flies, a huge 
cloud or clouds of flies uh, inflicting the house of Pharaoh, his servants' houses, and all the land of Egypt. And you may think of mosquitoes. You may think of the damage that flies can do. It's also been suggested that mosquitoes are able to bite somebody with HIV AIDS and fly maybe a mile or two, bite someone else, and somehow inflict such a person with HIV AIDS. There's much about HIV AIDS that we don't know much about. Back in the 1980s, it was referred to as GRID, gay-related immune disease. But you wouldn't hear anybody saying that today, would you? They wouldn't dare say gay-related, because to say such would be a hate crime. 25. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. In other words, get out of my sight. I know that what you are saying is probably correct, going back to Herod, uh, observing John the Baptist, almost enjoying his preaching in a macabre sense, and yet I can't lose face in the sight of my people. I have to stand firm. I have to see you off, because I am deity, if you will. Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. But of course, he had no intention of allowing this to take place. When the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, Herod would interrogate them and he would consult his priests that were always at his left-hand side. And they told Herod straight away where the newborn king was to be born. The wise men already knew where the uh, the, uh, Messiah was to be born. But of course, you know that Herod had no, no intention, no intention of heading off to worship the newborn king. 26. And Moses said, It is not meet so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians, the Lord our God. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abominations of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will they not stone us? Well, of course. And that's how it should be for the church. We should be an absolute abomination in the sight of the world. The church should be holy. The church should stand up for something. The church should have something to say. And the world should hate us. The world should resent us. We should be frozen out. We were told that we should rejoice when we were cast out as evil. But here Moses said, It is not meat, it is not right to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. In other words, they will see what we are doing, and we, the children of Israel, shall be an abomination in their eyes. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes? And will not they stone us? Well, of course. In other words, we want to go out from Egypt, this house of bondage. We want out. We want to go far and wide. We don't want to be hanging around this place any longer. We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he shall command us. Very reminiscent of the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross and after three days being raised from the dead. And many times this term, three days, will appear in both testaments, and yet, unfortunately, most Jews are blind to it. Most Jews have been indoctrinated out of it. Most Jews have been radicalized by their rabbis not to believe. The many messianic passages in the Old Testament that spoke very clearly about the coming Messiah, and, of course, the clearest passage would have to be Isaiah 53. But here in the context, it is in reference to Israel. It is in reference to, number one, leaving paganism, idolatry, wickedness, and going off into the wilderness, which later on would be a picture of the world, but here in the context, a picture of separation. Because if you don't separate, you will become contaminated. 
going back to the brethren elder who didn't want to separate from his daughter. And he paid quite a price for that. People were criticizing him for that. The usual Pharisees making quite a song and dance and using that against him. But here you're looking at Israel and Egypt. You're looking at Moses as a type of the Messiah. And Egypt is a type of the world. Israel is a type of the church. And when you got saved, if you are saved, you are called out of the world. The word, uh, the word church means called out. And once you are called out, you become a peculiar person. A very peculiar person. Someone who doesn't really fit in. Someone who doesn't really get along with the world. And yet going back to the reality of separation. Most saved people don't want to practice separation. Most saved people are very friendly with the world. And they keep in with people when they shouldn't. And I've said this over the years that the only exception that I can think of when it comes to separation would be number one, employment, number two, family. And yet even when it comes to family, you can still be careful. You can still uh, guard who you associate with. I remember speaking to a brother some years ago and he said this. He said, I am one of three brothers. One of my brothers is a missionary. The other is a bum hanging around with the wrong type of a woman. And he said to me, I've decided to separate from my youngest brother because of his lifestyle and yet remain in uh, contact with my other brother, the missionary. And I thought, yes, he was right. Down the line, it turned out that his brother was compromising with religious people, apostates, people with questionable uh, beliefs. And here was this brother that I knew in a difficult situation. He's already kicked out his youngest brother or his other brother. What will he do with his other brother, the missionary? Well, he sat in the fence, going back to the complexity of the subject. I could say if it was me, I would cut ties with both of my brothers. But I wasn't this particular person. And he decided to, like I say, separate from the wayward, backslidden brother, who's now pretty much an atheist or secular Contrast that to his missionary brother hanging around with an apostate church pushing doctrines that he didn't agree with and nor did I and he decided to remain in contact with such a brother. Christians are very complex and if you are a new Christian, if you are new to the faith and you are trying to work out who is real and who is not or uh, what is a true church and what is not, uh, what is not a true church, I, you have my condolences. It's not a difficult. It's it's not an easy situation. It's a difficult situation. It's very difficult to know who is real and who is not. And many times we, like I say, are harder, harder on those within the church than we are outside. Twenty-eight. And Pharaoh said, "I will let you go, that ye may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only ye shall not go very far away. Entreat for me." He's hanging on to them. He's desperate not to lose them they are money makers for him they built his treasure cities for him if you go back to 1996 john major the then british prime minister was desperate to remain in power and late 1996 early 1997 a young politician called tony blair came on the scene and at that time he was the leader of the opposition party the labor party and John Major had been Prime Minister for six years or thereabouts. And he was desperate to remain in power. And he decided to do this. He decided to call a six-week general election. Never been done before. Went to the palace. And he said to the Queen, can I have permission to dissolve Parliament for six weeks? Because every general election, Parliament is obviously shut. 
and the Queen gave him authority to shut it for six weeks. And he, along with Michael Heseltine, the then Deputy Prime Minister, said that they were going to smoke out the Labour Party. They were going to smoke out uh, Tony Blair. And Heseltine said he would. Uh, he was of the belief that the Tories would return to power with a whacking great majority. And he said they, uh, the country were sleepwalking to judgment, to disaster. Well, fast forward to the end of the six-week election campaign. The Tories were desperate to remain in power, spent millions of pounds on advertising this and that. And to their shock and horror, Tony Blair became the Prime Minister, won with a majority of 170 seats or thereabouts. And within 12 months, the American president, Bill Clinton, came to Downing Street, sat in a cabinet meeting the first time that's ever happened. And even he was shocked and stunned that such an avalanche had taken place. The Tories were booted out of office and would be out of office for some 13 years, desperate not to lose power. And here Pharaoh is desperate not to lose the Israelites because they are good for money. Only ye shall not go very far away, entreat for me. What did he think they were going to do? Go for a 10-minute walk, say a few prayers, and then go back into Egypt, which is what most churches do. Most churches meet once, twice, sometimes thrice a week for their prayers and their deeds and their beads, and then they go back home. The television goes on, the radio goes on, they start surfing the net. There's no change. There's no difference. They do religion for a period of time, and afterwards, back into the world. I know of a church... We know of a church in our town that would be there every Saturday for five hours at the heights of their presence. Five hours, six people. Now you'd be lucky to find one member there for 50 minutes. I've seen that church over the years, a conservative Calvinist church. And I've watched that church over the years. And I can think of a few people in that church. And I can think of one particular person who occasionally would join that church and I've watched this person along with this group over the years and I've never forgotten how on one occasion literally minutes after packing their boards away and saying farewell to each other one of the members of this church put his hand in his pocket and pulled out a pack of cigarettes put a cigarette into his mouth lit it and walked straight past us like we were invisible puffing away on a cigarette and I thought then, and I'll say it now, that if that is religion, you can keep it. Entreat for me. Intercede for me. Do something for me. I want a blessing. There was a guy called Cardinal Cody, a very controversial Catholic cardinal. And he would go to the Vatican on a regular basis. And many times people would say to him after a typical mass, I think he was the cardinal for Chicago. Say a prayer for me, Father. Entreat for me, Father. Intercede for me, Father. And they would give him dollar bills, like a lot of dollar bills. And on many occasions, he would have so much money that it would be pouring out of his pockets, falling onto the ground. He wasn't the only one, of course. We can think of many cardinals. And fact, Patrick has seen many priests with his own eyes in London that have been given 10, 20 pound notes, sometimes 50 pound notes. Say a prayer for me, only f uh, to realize that their pockets were overfilling. Notes falling around on the ground. Say a prayer for my relative, my 
late mother, my late father has been in purgatory for 25 years. Surely it's time for them to be released. And here's a question for you Catholics. How do you know for sure when your relative gets out of purgatory? Or here's another question for you Catholics. Did you know that the Pope of Rome has authority to release souls from purgatory? Did you know that? So the next time you go to the Vatican, the so-called Eternal City, and the Eternal City is not Rome, it is Jerusalem. The next time you go to the Vatican, try and get an audience with the Pope and ask him to, number one, find out how your relatives are doing in purgatory, how much suffering they are experiencing, and ask the Pope to give you a heads up as to how much longer they have in purgatory. And finally, ask the Pope, who I think was awarded Man of the Year last year, to uh, allow your loved ones out of purgatory. He has the authority to do so. But of course you have to understand that purgatory is a financial money maker. And you've got Catholics, if you will, slaves to Catholicism. And here you've got the Jews, the Israelites, slaves to the Egyptians. Look at verse 29, please. And Moses said, Behold, I go out from thee, and I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Again, a respite, a picture of mercy and grace. The Lord Jesus Christ would say on many occasions that he didn't come to destroy people, that God has a love for Jew and Gentile. And the Egyptians, of course, were Gentiles. But at the same time, Moses doesn't know the whole picture. Only the Lord knows the entire picture, the beginning from the end. And therefore, although the Lord would honor prayers of Moses, Moses wasn't necessarily aware as to what Pharaoh's plight would be. But let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. It almost sounds naive, doesn't it? I mean, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, a very wealthy man, back in the day when a pharaoh died, not only was he buried in the tombs and the pyramids, so too would be his minions, his lieutenants, his wives and concubines, and they would be buried sometimes alive in preparation for the next life. Verse 30, And Moses went out from Pharaoh, and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. There remained not one. Many people have to go to hell and back, like they say. Many people have to be broken in order to be saved. And here the Lord intercedes. The Lord honors the prayer of Moses, the word of Moses, Contrast that to John chapter 5, the word of Jesus, the word of God. The word of God cannot be broken. Thy word is eternal, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The word of God cannot be broken. And here Moses is the most powerful man in the world, if the truth were known. But as far as Pharaoh was concerned, he was the most powerful man in the world. The Lord steps in, he removes the swarms of flies Tens of thousands, we can't really appreciate it. There may have been a million or so flies all over the place, along with lice and frogs, afflicting people left, right and centre. The Egyptians, their priests were unable to do anything about it. And I think of recent events in the press concerning the disappearance of 
A girl in Portugal some years ago from a very middle-class family and her parents went to Rome and they spoke to the previous Pope, both Catholics incidentally, and this middle-class family, doctors by profession, went to Rome to see the Holy Father, quote-unquote, and they asked for his help to, number one, find their daughter, and number two, to return the daughter to them. And that's quite normal. If uh, you lose your child as a parent, you are desperate, of course, to find your child. The Pope couldn't help them out. And here we are some 10, 11, 12 years on. The daughter, their young daughter, hasn't been found. And just last week, a couple in Liverpool were seeing their young son die before their very eyes, both Catholics, and yet, as far as I know, unmarried, went to Rome, spoke to the Pope, and said, could you help us out? Our young boy is moments from death. He's very sick, and he certainly was. And there were people praying for that young boy. Nothing wrong with that, of course. And the Pope offered this, he offered that, and did all that he probably could do in a uh, physical sense, but he couldn't help them out in a spiritual sense. He couldn't speak to Almighty God in heaven. He couldn't put on his triple tiara. He couldn't say to this young Catholic couple, with the authority invested in me, I will make sure that your boy lives to see another day. He couldn't do anything for this young Catholic couple from Liverpool. And tragically, a week or so later, the boy died. But here, Moses is almost all-powerful, picturing Jesus Christ. In fact, in the, in, the, uh, in the Gospels, I think it's Luke's Gospel, it says how the Spirit was present to do miracles. Also from John's Gospel, it says how the Spirit wasn't given by measure to the Lord Jesus Christ, which really does uphold his deity and also makes the case that there wasn't anything that he could not do. And here Moses is also, in a similar sense, enjoying great power contrast that to pharaoh's priests they couldn't do anything contrast that to uh, previous popes they couldn't do anything they may offer you a mass they may say we're praying for you they may fast for you they may do this they may do that but that's not what you want is it if you are a parent and your child has been abducted or has disappeared or is dying you want your church if you are catholic to do something for you you want a miracle don't you And yet, to the best of my knowledge, no Pope has ever been able to give any kind of a miracle. Do anything for anyone, in a sense or in a way that you couldn't possibly miss it. And he's very reminiscent to the false priests under Pharaoh's command. Verse 32, please. And Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. It's a heart issue once again. Your heart is not only desperately wicked, but you are very complex You are a very complicated person. Going back to some of the people that I've spoken about this morning. Brothers, saved brothers, brothers that I know personally. And if I was in their shoes, who knows what I would do. I may also compromise. I may also turn a blind eye. But if you continue to turn a blind eye, if you continue to compromise, you become worthless. You don't bring forth any fruit to perfection. And after a while, you just wither away and almost die in a spiritual sense so 32 verses from the eighth chapter of the book of exodus and we've been able to cover these verses over the last three sundays looking at the 10 plagues and of course 10 the number 10 is a gentile number 
10 plagues are going to afflict Egypt. The term exodus means leave, it means exit, it means Brexit. You've got frogs, you've got lice, you've got swarms of flies. Three disgusting creatures being inflicted on idolatrous Egypt. The Israelites, the Jews, have been protected. The land of Goshen is 40 miles long. And if you think of how long the Jews were in the wilderness, 40 years, you see many similarities. The Lord is going to protect his chosen race. He will protect the body of Christ. Feeding into once saved, always saved. Your heart is deceitfully wicked, uh, verse 29, in reference to Pharaoh. And Jeremiah 17, verse 9, picks up this same kind of a thing. Your heart is desperately wicked, full of poison and asps. Nothing good comes from uh, your mouth or your heart. In fact, go to James. This came to me as a relevant uh, passage. James uh, chapter 1. Somebody once said that the one thing that men learn from history is that men never learn from history. Much truth in that. Uh, James chapter 1. James chapter 1 also picks up on this whole issue of who you are and what you are. James 1. James 1. Look at verse 26, if you will. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Unlike the Pharisees back in the Gospels, unlike priests and popes today. Jump over to chapter 3, James chapter 3. James chapter 3, look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. The tongue. The tongue could be a saved person's tongue. It could be an unsaved person's tongue. A bit like Pharaoh. One moment he's bragging about how powerful and holy he is, and the next minute he's on his knees, begging Moses, in his eyes, a third-rate person, a Jew, despised in the eyes of of the Egyptians, and yet he needs this Jew's help. Jump down to verse 14. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This is written to saved people, not unsaved people. 15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. So, yes, the Lord will protect you. He will keep you saved if you are saved. He won't allow devils, demons to possess you, take you over. But you have to guard what you see, what you hear, and what you speak. And if you find yourself guilty of James 13, verses 14 and 15, be aware that such comes from the devil, not from above. In other words, it is unholy, not holy. And as a result, you need to shut your mouth. Be careful what you say and how you say it. And as uh, Peter would say, make your calling and election sure, and as John would say, confess your sins to him straight away, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, and keep you close and safe in the beloved, and you will never stray from the Lord. So close it there, and God willing, next week, pick it up from Exodus chapter 9.